I remember at Must one time we got asked to make champagne cocktails out of vintage Krug and some crazy expensive cognac and I was like, what? You guys are mad. Um, stuff like that, you know, just kind of drives me a bit nutty. I get a little bit, um, I get a bit of, I'm a bit of a wine hoarder. Sometimes I don't like to sell wine to people unless I feel like they deserve it. So, which is it's not necessarily the best trait to have. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. A year ago, Chris Morrison shared his concerns for the sommelier profession when restaurants were forced into takeaway, a career where the restaurant floor is their stage. Sommeliers add depth and knowledge to the dining experience, but the pandemic put it all in doubt. A year on, is their presence even more valued than it's ever been? Emma Farrelly is the Director of Wine at State Buildings and Como Treasury in Perth, Western Australia. Emma, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. You look after the wine program for so many different venues. I do, yes. Is, what's, what's the challenges involved with dealing with so many different offerings? Oh, um, I mean, the main one is probably logistics, which is super boring. Um, <laughs> but when you've got so many different outlets and we only have one, we have one loading dock here in the buildings that everything arrives into. And so just coordinating the sheer volume of stock that comes through those doors and gets to where it needs to be um, and is the right, correct thing is, you know, that takes up a lot of my time. Um, invoices and wrong picks and that sort of stuff is just, yeah, incredibly frustrating, but part of life. Take us through the precinct because it's an amazing, um, amazing space and development with multiple venues in it. Give us an idea of the type of cuisines and offerings that are there that you have to try and tailor wine for. Um, okay, so the buildings are basically, um, they sat here empty for 20 years, um, a beautiful heritage listed building. And then um, my director, Adrian Finney, um, is incredibly um, passionate about old buildings in Perth. And so he redeveloped the site and it took about 10 years for the redevelopment to sort of to to roll out. And we now have over seven sort of, well, seven food and beverage offerings in the building um, alongside a 48-room boutique hotel. So we have everything from Wildflower on our rooftop, which is um, Australian fine dining that sort of leans to the um, six seasons of the Indigenous calendar. Um, so we use a lot of West Australian produce up there, lots of native ingredients. Um, so everything really on the plate sort of comes from, from a local sort of place. Um, then we have David Thompson's Long Tomb in the basement, which is obviously um, incredibly famous um, Thai street food. And down there, it's really dark and, and dirty and dingy and, and, and loud and smoky. And um, it's a really exciting space down there. Um, so working with that sort of food is really challenging as well. We have an Italian um, a restaurant called Post Osteria, which is a beautiful modern Italian, um, which is very, very busy with corporates and we you know, do a lot of events in there. We have Petition Kitchen, which is an all-day dining, um, probably based slightly on the sort of cumulus model, I guess. It's sort of seven days a week, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, fairly approachable and, you know, but really, really well-made, delicious share food. We have Petition Beer Corner, which is a craft beer bar. Um, we have Petition Wine Shop or Petition Wine Store, which is a, um, a takeaway, sort of a retail wine space and wine bar. Um, we have a private members club. We have a cocktail bar called Paul's Temple. 
it's busy. There's a lot going on. <laughs> it's a <laughs> yeah. it's a huge development, and there's so many amazing offerings there. And Wildflowers won many awards already, and you sort of briefly mentioned um, how they create the menu. What was it like trying to create a wine list to tailor to such a unique offering? It's tricky. Wildflower is probably one of the toughest um, restaurants to match wine to. And Matthew Satori, who is the executive chef up there, his food is amazing and he's really, he's great to work with. Um, you know, I find sometimes chefs can be very much about, this is my food, you must find a wine to match now. Whereas, you know, I think it has to sometimes come from both, both sides, especially he uses a lot of, as I said, a lot of native ingredients, which I find can be very, um, you know, very strong, quite salty, quite tart, quite sour. Um, you know, a lot of them are really high in acidity. And for me, that's sort of what the wine component brings to the, the matching is the acidity and the freshness. So sometimes we have to work together to sort of, you know, I'm like, could you pull back on the acid a little bit here because I need the wine to sing a bit more? Or could you add a little bit more salt here because I need the wine to sort of have a bit more of a presence on the stage? So, but he's, he's really good like that. He's very, um, he's great to work with. And the pastry chefs up there are awesome and they're very, um, you know, if I'm like, you need to, you know, make it a bit more sweet or a bit less sweet, they're, they're very, they're very flexible. They're a really good team. So I feel quite lucky when I'm working with them. You mentioned the um, logistics involved in so many venues and ensuring the wine offerings are, are unique to all of them. What's, what's the size of your team and the scale of the operations there? Um, well, at the buildings, we have over just over 300 staff at the moment, I think. I have not last time I checked, including hotel staff, um, front office, you know, everyone in, in the offices and from kitchen hands right through to front of house. So it's a big team. Um, and I think, as I said, logistics, being that we're an old building, we have a lot of um, structural uh, difficulties that we can't get around because it's heritage listed. So mm. the service elevator is the bane of everyone's existence. <laughs> uh, it goes from the basement to the rooftop where Wildflower is. And those chefs are incredibly patient having to trundle up and down the elevator so many times a day um and it's a slow it's a slow elevator so it's a lot of time spent making friends um I like to try and make friends in the elevator because you're always running into <laughs> people and having a chat about your day um so that's a bit of a nightmare but I think also being in Perth sometimes just and especially in the last 12 months um continuity of stock stock availability stock being here has been incredibly challenging as I'm sure it has been for everyone all over the country, but most of the imported wine that comes into Australia arrives on the East Coast and then gets transported over here. So not only are we waiting on ships arriving in Melbourne and Sydney, but then we're waiting for those things to be unpacked and to go, through, go through customs and then go to the warehouse and then be sent on a truck or a train over to us and then go through another warehouse once it gets here and waiting all the time, waiting for things to get here is is frustrating. And as I said, in the last year, obviously it's been complete mess for everyone. So um, we've had to be really patient and sort of, I guess I've had to adapt the way that I've done things a little bit. Um, in the past, I used to be very, you know, the lists were quite structured and there was a lot of, you know, there was time where I would change things and I had my schedule because I have to be really organized about when I was going to do different things and, you know, I'm going to change this glass list in long chim in February, I'm changing the glass list in wildflower in April and that's how it's going to work. And now I have to be a little bit more flexible because I can't necessarily get what I want when I want it and I can't get as much. Um, I guess logistics combined with the fact that Australia as a country has had a couple of really um, unfortunate vintages with bushfires and, and that sort of thing. So 
just quantities of wine um, from a lot of the producers on the East Coast that I really love to support have been limited as well. So um, there's been a number of factors that have made some interesting challenges in the last year, but, um, you know, I still feel like it's a really lucky, fortunate role to have. I think a lot of people in the world do a lot, you know, they have a lot more challenges than I have every day. So I still feel like it's, um, it's still a really blessed kind of role to have and just have to adjust and change things a little bit. WA had some pretty strict border closures and, and also restrictions on those coming in. Uh, what sort of impact has that had on, on the whole precinct in regards to tourism and um, hotel guests? Yeah, it's been really interesting actually because, uh, you know, we are a really um, boutique um, luxury hotel offering and so a lot of our, our general clientele are international. Um, and we were a little bit concerned to begin with of how that would play out um, once we reopened. Would people come and stay with us? Um, would people come midweek, you know? And straight away we had a lot of people coming on the weekends. A lot of people wanted to make up for special occasions they'd missed. And it is a really beautiful hotel to come and stay at for a special occasion because the rooms are really big and everything is beautiful and it's very detailed and, and the, you know, the hotel team is so wonderful. You get so beautifully looked after here. Um, but we were concerned of how people would, would look to spending that money and, and would they do it often enough. But it's actually been incredibly, we've been incredibly lucky and everyone's been very, very good over here. We've had lots of people from the country, um, Country WA coming to, to stay with us and a lot of people... Um, local people from Perth, um, not only staying on weekends, but staying during the week. And we've, we've rolled out some different sort of packages so that people can experience the buildings in a slightly different way, um, which have been really successful. So, yeah, the hotel is sort of busier than, busier than it's ever been, really. We just had a really great month. And, you know, even midweek now, bookings are really, really solid on a Monday and Tuesday night. So it's been good for the most part. You spent the last two decades... Uh, dedicating your career to wine and you've won many awards. How, how have you seen the importance of the role of the sommelier change in the last two decades? Um, I think it's changed in lots of ways. For me, I'm sort of one of those people who I'm not really classically, I'm not a classically trained sommelier. I, I did study wine at university under a master of wine who was in Perth and running a program here because he was based here. Um, but other than that, most of my, most of my learning has been on the job. Um, I've had some really amazing mentors that I've worked with and that have helped me a lot throughout my career. And I'm not a really bookish person. I don't really like studying. I don't love having my head in a book. I like to do things, um, be a little bit more creative. And I'd rather go and get my hands dirty in a vineyard than read a book about it. So um, I guess for me maybe 20 years ago, it sort of seemed like you needed to have that piece of paper or that badge. Um, and I know there's still a very strong inclination for a lot of young people in the industry to, to go down that path, which is great. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot more young people who are sort of pursuing that and it's becoming a little bit easier in Australia, whereas it used to be a little bit harder in Australia, especially in Perth, when you couldn't access the, the right classes and the right sort of platforms to, to achieve those goals. But um, I think now, you know, and I work with a lot of people here in the buildings that haven't got those pieces of paper or haven't got that that pin who are just incredibly passionate about wine and do we necessarily call ourselves sommeliers not always um they sort of you know some of the, the team that I work with they're like I don't really want to call myself a sommelier I'm just a wine kid you know I just love wine so um and I think we see that a lot more over here Perth's probably taken a bit of a 
a turn from fine dining in the last 10 years. And to be honest, there's not that many restaurants like Wildflower in Perth. Probably more of the high-end dining is in the southwest at a lot of the great wineries. Um, so I think the service style has relaxed a lot over the last 10 years. People are a little bit more, um, you know, that the food, the style of eating is a lot more shared food. It's quite approachable. Um, and I think the service kind of has to match that. You know, if you're, if you're sitting somewhere and you're sharing various plates of food and you're drinking some crazy skinsy thing from Etna, you don't necessarily need someone in a suit to come over and sell that to you. And I think most venues in Perth have kind of picked up on that. So there is a little bit more of a relaxed mentality to the wine industry, but also there's been a, um, a huge shift in, you know, there's been a lot of great little wine stores open in the last five years down in Fremantle and in Maylands and incredibly passionate people who have opened these great little retail spaces um, who just love wine and are really passionate about supporting great producers and both local and international. And I think it's really just giving the people of Perth a lot more choice um, and so they don't have to sort of go to those big um commercial bottle stores they can sort of go to their locals and and create relationships with the buyers and the sellers and yeah and it's sort of nice I think there's a, everyone feels a lot more connected I think to the industry than maybe they did 15 20 years ago take us back to your childhood and your family when when did you first get interested in food and and, and what led to the career in hospitality um I've always loved food. As a child, I used to love, um, I grew up in a house, a relatively small house with a huge backyard. And um, so I spent a lot of time in the garden with my parents. You know, most weekends were spent in the garden. And I was always creating little bowls of plants mashed up with sand and water and, and you know, putting it into an old teapot and making and pretending it was tea. And I loved doing that sort of stuff. As I got older, I guess, mum and dad were still in the garden and I was in the kitchen making lunch for them and I'd prepare things on a platter and bring everything out and I'd, you know, I spent hours trying to make it all look all fancy. Um, so it's always been a huge love, just feeding, feeding people, looking after people. Um, and I think when I was about, must have been about 14, they took us to a restaurant for dinner and we didn't, get, we didn't go out very often um, as kids, you know, it was some special occasion stuff. And I think my older sister was graduating high school and they took us out for dinner to this restaurant. And it was a bit of a grown-up restaurant. It was like no one I'd ever been before. And I remember walking in and smelling that smell of food. It was Italian, so I could smell Italian food. I could smell coffee in the air. I could smell cigarettes in the air. Obviously, it was in the 80s, 90s. Um, I could smell alcohol. And I just – and it was dark and it was loud. And all of those scents just kind of combined. And I, it just kind of clicked in me. I was like, that, this is where I want to be. This is a good space. I like this space. And even now sometimes if I'm in the office, which is downstairs, and I come up onto the floor and walk into one of the restaurants, I can still smell those smells. And I'm, it kind of reminds me of why I liked it. But, yeah, I, I started working in a fruit and veggie shop when I was 13. I think I lied about my age to get my first job. <laughs> um, I was like, yes, just have me. Just I'll give me one day and I'll prove how good I am. Um, and then from there moved to a cafe. So I worked in cafes for a couple of years while I was still a teenager. And then when I was 17, I got my first job in a hotel, but I couldn't serve alcohol because I was too young. So I had to be the breakfast girl. Um, and at the time I was studying, I went to TAFE after high school and did a hospitality and tourism course, but I was, I found I was learning more on the job than I was learning at TAFE, but I did two years of that just for fun, um, and to get a piece of paper. Um, and yeah, then I've just worked in restaurants my whole life since then. And I can't imagine really doing anything else. 
had a few brief moments where I thought I might like to change and never have. There's been some uh, key mentors uh, that have helped shape your career. Can you, can you tell us about them and the influence they had? Yes, definitely. Um, when I was at Must, I, I started working at Must Wine Bar in 2000 and, oh, that must have been 2001, I think. And I, um, I was only about 23, 24 when I took over from Anne-Marie Banting, who had been sort of running the wine program. And I worked closely under her and another girl called Natasha. And I, um, they taught me a lot and I sort of was just sucking up all the knowledge I could get from them. And they both left and I was like, right, I'm ready to take over and do this. And I remember Russell Blakey, who was the, um, my boss and the owner of Mars, sort of said to me, look, you know, we're really keen for your energy and your enthusiasm, but we'd like to sort of bring someone in just to, you know, give you a hand. And at the time I remember thinking, what is he talking about? I know what I'm doing. I can do this. I don't need him to tell me what to do. I don't need someone to come and tell me what to do. Um, and they hired um, a gentleman called Paul McArdle and he turned out to be the greatest. It was the greatest thing for me ever because we, you know, he was incredibly, he'd never really done a role like that before. And he was so passionate about wine that he was very gentle and very easy to work with. And he taught me how to taste um he taught me how to taste better and he just taught me how to write more beautifully about wine and, and just uh, just opened my eyes to a whole lot of stuff in the industry that I didn't know anything about. But, of course, I thought I did because I was 24 and, you know, you think you know it all. So we had a really close relationship for sort of the seven years I was there and um, and he continued on there for a lot longer after I left Um so he, yeah, he was really instrumental and still to this day, you know, there's not very many people that I get nervous about choosing a wine for, but Paul, I always get nervous about choosing a wine for. Um, his palate is quite incredible and he's very, very specific and, um, yeah, I just, I love the way he speaks about wine and, yeah, still is, um, when I do get to spend time with him, not as much anymore, but when I do, it's always, I always learn something, um, so he was really special. I think Russell as well, working with Russell, he's probably the greatest chef, you know, one of the greatest chefs I've ever worked with. He was incredibly uh, generous in terms of allowing me to, to run that wine program. And I remember one day he sort of said to me, look, if you can sell it, you can buy it, um, which is a pretty nice thing to be told. And just that trust in his, in his restaurant and his business was pretty incredible. So I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot of what I, you know, as a, as a manager and as a boss, what I wanted to be like. Um, I've also worked for quite a few people that have taught me what I don't want to be like. Um, I think that's important as well. You sort of have to take, take the good with the bad, but, um, yeah, they were two pretty important people that, that I worked with that were very encouraging. Um, and where I am now, you know, there's a lot of incredibly passionate people in the buildings here and, um, yeah, we, we, a lot of us get really heated and fired up about food and wine because we're incredibly passionate about it and it's really nice working alongside people who sort of inspire you and, I guess, drive you to be better all the time. Um, we don't really, we tend not to settle here. We're always pushing um, to be better. I think you can never sort of say, oh, yeah, we've done it. We've, that's great. We've done a good job. You always have to, there's always something that you can do that's better. So I'm pretty harsh on myself like that, I guess always pushing the art of service and um and being a sommelier is um very influential on the dining experience but has there has there been nights that have gone wrong for you over the years has there been any sort of instances that um have been you know a bit of a crazy evening 
Um, oh. um, I mean, I, you know, we've had everything from, you know, people who come in and they want to just flash their money around and buy really expensive things and ask you to. I remember at must one time we got asked to make champagne cocktails out of vintage Krug and <laughs> some crazy expensive cognac, and I was like, "What? You guys are mad." Um, <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, just kind of drives me a bit nutty. I get a little bit, um, I get a bit of, I'm a bit of a wine hoarder. Sometimes I don't like to sell wine to people unless I feel like they deserve it. So which is, uh, <laughs> it's not necessarily the best trait to have. Um, you know, I've had, I've got a few injuries. I've smashed bottles and I must once I smashed a bottle of champagne open on my leg on New Year's Eve and had a shard of glass jammed into my shin bone, which was really unfortunate. And I, um, I had to go off and have stitches because it was just gushing blood everywhere. And I was like, well, I can just back to work on the floor. Like, I've got to go up this New Year's Eve. I've got to go back. I've got to go back. The doctor was like, you are not going back to work with this. Um, so the staff had to pretty much just keep me out the door because I was refusing to, to not go back to work. But, um, yeah, it's a crazy industry. It's always something funny going on. For, for someone who is leading um, such a big team for that front of house experience, what, what is, what's the messaging that you give your team to create that great wine experience in the multi, multitude of venues? Yeah, it's difficult because we have obviously um, such a vast array of dining offerings here as we talked about. So um, obviously I guess for me in somewhere like Wildflower, even though it is classified fine dining, I want the service up there to be really approachable and, and friendly and not too stuffy. I think we've all had that experience at a restaurant where someone's made you feel um, a little bit smaller than, than you are for your choices and I don't ever want to have people feel like that here. So I think um, I love that sort of invisible style of service in fine dining where things just happen around you and you don't even realise they're happening. Um, I'd love to send the staff up there to ballet classes and you know, acting classes. I think that's the sort of stuff that great front of house teams in those sort of environments should do because they need to learn how to move and and act and be this person um, every night of the week, no matter if they've had a bad day or, you know, their car broke down on their way to work or something like that. They need to come in and they, essentially it's playing a role. So I think trying to teach them to think like that is important. Um, whereas then down in Long Chim where it's, you know, a lot of our team down there are Thai, and, you know, the Thai culture, they don't really drink a lot of wine. So for them talking about wine, uh, when I do wine training with them, it's really hard because they, they taste things and they say, oh, it's good, it's very sour. And I'm sort of like, oh, don't say sour. <laughs> <laughs> um, bitter? I'm like, don't, don't say bitter, you know, because the words that they associate with flavours like sour and bitter and, and strong um, are used a lot in Thai food. But when you translate it into the wine world, those wine words come across as being a little bit negative. So... It's sort of about trying to teach them words for bitter and sour and strong that are a little bit more attractive. Um, and always, I kind of always try and bring it back to food for them because they understand food flavours a lot more than they understand wine flavours. So that's a bit of a challenge that we find down there as well. The wine industry in Australia has evolved beautifully over the last couple of decades and Western Australian wine is um, has its, own, its amazing own identity as well. And you mentioned some of the best restaurants are down in the wine sort of regions of the south. What do you love about Western Australian wine? Um, it, yeah, we are really lucky here. It's um, We're lucky because, you know, we make um, – such a huge percentage of premium wine, you know, I think I can't remember the exact statistics because I'm bad with numbers, but, you know, we don't make 
our contribution to the wine of the whole country is, is quite small, but of that percentage of premium wine, it's really, really high. So we don't make a lot of bad wine in WA. It's, uh, and we don't make a lot of commercial, you know, super high volume wine, um, which is really quite fortunate and something I think a lot of the time people don't necessarily think about. So we're pretty blessed in the fact that we have all this fantastic fruit here. We're also pretty lucky with seasons, especially Margaret River. It's sort of one of the most perfect wine growing regions in the world, I think. Um, and I've heard many winemakers down there sort of say a similar thing. Out of every 10 vintages, they might have one bad one, um, which is really lucky and can't be said for a lot of, a lot of places, not only in Australia, but in the world. Um, so I think it's a really, they're blessed with a really beautiful growing season and uh, in Margaret River. Great Southern obviously is a, is a really huge region, very vast and diverse and um, I really love talking about the Great Southern because I think it's got this incredible amount of potential in terms of tourism and um, food and wine tourism that doesn't really get touched on enough because when people come here they sort of tend to head down to Margaret River but Great Southern's that little bit further and everything's more spread out so once you're down there, sort of even driving between the sub-regions can sort of take quite a long time. And um, But it's very special down there. It's sort of, there are some just fantastic wines at exceptionally good prices because people don't, I think a lot of people haven't even touched on how great the Great Southern is and how great the wines are coming out of that region. Um, and then we have the Swan Valley, which is, you know, the second oldest region in the, the country and has so much incredible history. And for a long time it was sort of associated with um, because it's quite close to the city, it's only just a half an hour away. It was associated with these awful bus filled, you know, buses filled with women wearing play suits with a glass hung around their neck, you know, going on these boozy gay trips and everyone would just be like, oh, my God, it's the worst. And a lot of the table wine was, was not that great because it is a, a quite a warm region. So they've always been really well known for fortifiers, but their table wines have been a little bit flabby and a little bit high in alcohol. Um, in the past, but in the last sort of five years, there's been this huge, um, you know, surge of young winemakers um, working with old vineyards in the valley, but picking early, you know, fantastic old Shannon and Grenache vines, um, but picking early, keeping freshness and crunch and brightness in the wines. And they're so popular and it's just really beautiful to see this spotlight being put back on the valley and even seeing people who, who were sort of making wine in a slightly more old-fashioned style kind of going, oh, okay, well, maybe we need to have a look at what we're doing and pick it a little earlier and, you know, these styles seem to be really popular. And so it's nice to be able to really talk a lot about the Valley in a, in a, in a quality wine um, context, I guess, um, because for a long time, you know, it really got pushed under the, under the rug. So it's really nice to talk about the Valley. You've won Sommelier of the Year a couple of times and won so many awards for wine lists. What makes a great wine list? Is there, is there a couple of pointers that you look for to create one? Um, I think I always write a wine list for, for the venue, for the food and for the demographic of consumer that's going there. I don't write wine lists for me and I think sometimes – you do see that in the industry, you sort of see people that write wine lists for them um, for what they like to drink, which I don't think is the right thing to do. I mean, you have to, you have to obviously believe and enjoy the brands that you work with and, and, you know, I always am very passionate about supporting great brands, great people that have good stories and all that. But, yeah, I, I don't 
I don't write lists for me. I write lists that I know are going to work with the food, the people that are drinking their lists, you know, a wine list that makes someone feel comfortable. Some, you know, there's always got to be an option for everyone, I think. It doesn't matter whether you're 20 or 80, you should be able to go onto a wine list and say, oh, that's, I feel comfortable with that or I know that or um, as well as then having smatterings of really unusual things that if you are that sort of more discerning drinker who wants to be, you know, wowed by something they've never heard of before, it's nice to be able to have those things there as well. So, um, yeah, I guess I try to think like that. I try not to lean into the the cool things that come out. Sometimes, you know, we see it across the industry. There's everyone's pouring the same stuff and I get annoyed at that. <laughs> I don't want to have the same stuff as everybody else. It, gets, it bores me. I'm like, oh, I don't want to have the same things. So, um, which all of my suppliers know that. I'm a bit of a nightmare sometimes. I'm like, no, I don't want it if they're having it. I don't want it. Um, so I get a little bit greedy, but, um, you know, it's nice to have a point of difference. You know, you want to be able to have things that, uh, and, you know, I think that's, I guess for me, that's sort of seeking out small producers across the country that um, might not be stocked everywhere that we can sort of grab little bits and pieces of and just try and show showcase people from around the country or around the world that, you know, might not be everywhere, um, which takes time and perseverance and, again, comes down to logistics and freight, which I hate, freight. Um, <laughs> everything's expensive getting it here. But, um, yeah, I think, yeah, as I said, I never look at them. My staff always, I'm always looking at the lists. I'm like, I hate it. I hate this. It's terrible. So I'm never happy with the lists. I'm always, there's always something that could be better on them, I think. For someone who's dedicated their life to the wine industry, uh, what, what what makes a great wine experience for you? Do you have a favourite wine experience that you've had? Um, yeah, I've had a few. It's hard to sort of pinpoint. I mean, I guess the main thing for me and for a lot of people in this industry is, is travel and is going to these places. And once you've been there and you've, and you've smelt the earth and you've touched the soil and you've met the people and you've seen, you know, everything about the space it's it's just much easier to sort of for me it sort of cements in my brain what that region is all about um and I have a couple of ones that have really kind of I guess pinpointed my life and that I never forget like if I smell Mornington Pinot I just straight away I'm back in Mornington it was one of the first regions I went to when I was young and I spent a weekend there um you know just drinking Pinot and I think because it was all quite new to me, it really has a, a, it just fixated in my in my head. And so now, the minute I smell a glass of Mornington Pinot, I'm straight back to that weekend. Um, that was, you know, same for sort of probably Barossa. The first time I went to Barossa, that you know, it was the same sort of experience. I think one of my greatest um, experiences internationally was probably Santorini in Greece. Um, I was fortunate enough to go there a couple of years ago on an amazing wine trip. With um, it was one of those unicorn trips with just the most fantastic people from around Australia. There was only about eight of us, and we all got along really, really well. And um, I mean, Santorini is one of those islands that you sort of see on a postcard and think, "Oh, it can't be that beautiful." And then we got there, and I was like, "Oh, it's way more beautiful than the postcards," you, you know. <laughs> um, and but I mean, it's one of those really interesting places where it has all that beautiful tourism side and the beautiful white buildings, and it's very Santorini. But then the vineyards. Um, and specifically we were visiting uh, Sagalas, the vineyards are incredibly arid and, you know, there's nothing there and there's beautiful volcanic soils and they just, they grow the best grapes and the best tomatoes and the best olives. And But there's just these barren sort of vineyards with a donkey roaming around and 
it's super windy and you can sort of smell the saltiness of the ocean and yeah, it was one of those really special places that I felt very, very, very lucky to be able to visit. So that's sort of that's probably one of my highlights of great vineyards I've been to. As international borders open again, what what are you most looking forward to? Um, yeah, I guess I guess guests, you know, international guests. We've missed I've missed winemakers. I've missed seeing winemakers even domestically. You know, I haven't seen any East Coast winemakers for such a long time, and it's normally either they're getting over here or I'm getting over there, and so there's a few people that I haven't seen for ages, which um, I'm looking forward to. And, yeah, I guess having, having international people back so that we can sort of brag about what we do here is really important for us, you know. It's, it's a really special part of the country and um, I think maybe more so now than ever we all appreciate it a little bit more because we've been stuck here and we have been a little bit cut off from the rest of the country. Um, so... Um, you know, I think a lot of people in Perth have done a lot of exploring in their own backyards and, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't buy any outdoor equipment for about a year because everything just sold and everyone was off going camping and driving up north and doing different things. And I think um, as, a, as a state, I think all of us are pretty keen to share those experiences that we've had with people who come here and we've all learned a bit more about WA and why it's so great. So... Yeah, it'll be good to be able to share that with people again when they get back here. You know, I miss those people that come and stay at the hotel and they're always driving down to Margaret River and they're like, where should we go? And I miss having that conversation with them and telling them all the great places they need to visit and, you know, the little out-of-the-way places and the small places and as well as some of the big ones. So I look forward to being able to do that again. And I look forward to getting away. I want to go somewhere. <laughs> I want to go somewhere so badly. <laughs> Well, Emma, uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today and very much looking forward to experiencing that over in WA again and also going overseas like uh, many of us are all wishing for. Uh, we've loved having you on. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPA community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>